Welcome to Gender Meowster Podcast Network. Genderful is a talk show featuring non-binary and trans folks discussing various topics and special interests. We kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of identities. All opinions are the speaker's own. This show airs live on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash gender meowster and VODs with show notes can also be found on YouTube. Content warnings for this episode include mental health crises, psychiatric hospitalization, discussion of psychiatric medications, ableism, and transphobia. So, Miani folks, I'm Gender Meowster, and I will let my very generous patient guest introduce themselves. (laughs) Hello, my name is Devin S. Turk. My pronouns are they, he. You can call me Devin. Thank you to Gender Meowster for having me. I'm hyped to be here. Um, Let's see. I am autistic, I'm trans, I'm non-binary, and I'm currently really into, well, I haven't played it as much recently, but Game Boy Tetris is totally my jam. So Nice. Oh, I love that. I wonder if there's like a phone version of Tetris. And just like you really need the the, cl- the plastic clunky buttons to get the full experience in my the, opinion but yeah, there are a lot the, of emulators. The tactile so. the tactile mess is very nice. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well Devin, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um Let's let's jump into it. Uh, what are some things you can trace back to your youth that indicated you might be trans or gender diverse one day? So I was always very much a tomboy and very much uh, like short hair, wearing my older brother's hand-me-down T-shirts sort of child. Um, I played in the woods a lot. None of this has means that I'm trans inherently, obviously. But I mean, looking back, I think my rejection of things that were stereotypically feminine um gradually led <laughs> or increased the you know i would i there there i drew a self-portrait at the age of like maybe 10 in fifth grade and i found it recently and it is of me wearing a baseball cap and i had long hair at that point and i was like wow you know i i drew a self-portrait of myself as a masculine looking person as like maybe a 10 or 11 year old that's, that's some trans, um, that's some transness right there. Um, so there were a lot of little things and some other bigger, bigger things as I got older, um, puberty was hectic. Obviously it is for everybody. For me, it was just, I mean, horrible, uh, for a lot of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into or we can get into, but, um, a lot of breadcrumbs and then solidifying into maybe more of a loaf situation that wound up with me being trans. So, yeah. (laughs) If you pardon the uh, bakery metaphor. <laughs> um, and how has your relationship to gender evolved over time? So you went from being this tomboyish kid to the wonderful bescruffled being that you are today. <laughs> yeah, the, the the beard has been a long time coming and it really, this is all that it does. I get some stray hairs up towards my ears, but basically it's just the lower patch of my chin. Um So over time, I think in the beginnings of me grappling with trans identity and realizing that one can be trans, um, I was fixated on naming it and deciding I I needed somebody to tell me if I was trans enough. And now I know that is a very like, is not a thing you have to vibe with if you don't want to. I mean, nobody can tell you if you're trans except you. Nobody can tell you what your gender is except you. And as a scared teenager, that is like frustrating. And then ultimately it's liberating because you're the one that gets to decide who you are and then tell the world about it if you so choose. Um, 
so I think I've been become, I've become less fixated on labels and like trans enough, this trans enough that, and more like what would make me feel comfortable in my body surgery wise, hormone wise, um, labels are cool. If I, if I find one that seems like it fits, but if it fits like an, like a pair of jeans that are too small, then it goes out with the uh, trash. <laughs> I love that. You know, taking what you like and, and leaving the rest. That's so good. Somebody wrote an article on, I think it was maybe a Tumblr post or some sort of like Marie Kondo's um, idea of what sparks joy in terms mm -hmm. of cleaning your house. But you can do that with anything. You can do that with gender. If it doesn't spark yeah. joy, just get rid of it. You know, <laughs> I, <vibe with laughs> I, that. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was in a, a friend's Twitch chat uh, in the last two days. I don't remember exactly when, and we were talking about um, like non-binary surgery options and like, how do you, how do you find your way to modifying your meat suit to what you want it to be? Um, but sort of like letting go of societal norms and binary gender expectations and all of these pieces. And so like they were talking about, you know, picking some, but not all pieces of bottom surgery and what that looked like. And, um, anyway, so I just, I found that to be really, um, powerful. I love that. The Marie Kondo, your gender. <laughs> Absolutely. And I feel it's, it's, it's so accepted or is more accepted maybe for, for lower surgeries mm. to have kind of a grab bag of options in terms of what you want to have done. Mm -hmm. Um, but top surgery is seen as this kind of like cookie cutter procedure and it doesn't have to be, um, mm. in terms of the amount of tissue you would like to have remaining or removed. Um, gender is a grab bag and it can also just be like, not a grab like it's it, it's it's what you make of it and it's what you want it to be and i think that's that's what's that's what cis people are missing out on <laughs> yeah 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 you know i actually had two top surgeries i had a reduction mm. that was supposed to treat back pain and mm. then later i was like nope i <laughs> this is still too girly for me i don't want it so then i had a yeah. full double mastectomy with chest masculinization but you're right that like you can totally choose like steps along the way and see what you like and you know if 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 one does it in a good order, you can change your mind later and still make more changes. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, particularly in the cis mindset is like, what if you regret it? What if you, you know, all of this sort of like toxic mindset that is, mm -hmm. that is built to keep people from transitioning and to scare children away for teens and young adults and anybody away from exploring queer identity. Like you can go on T for a little bit or estrogen or whatever. And if you're, it's not like a, you've signed your life away, you know, you can, if I'm not advocating that people experiment willy nilly with all sorts of whatever, but like, <laughs> if you decide that you want to start testosterone and be on it for a couple of months, you don't have to take it for the rest of your life. Nobody, nobody's like mandating yeah. that. I mean, I feel like a lot of cis people and people who are not as familiar with transness and trans identity think that it's an all or nothing thing. And like, mm -hmm. it totally does not have to be. Yeah, absolutely. You're totally right. I love this conversation so much already. It's so much fun. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your, your special topic that you selected for today. Um, so you, the, the, the episode title, as long as we haven't changed it in post <laughs> is disability and madness with Devin S Turk. They, he, and so you chose the phrase madness, which when I went to post this, um, in my Discord server, my little bot that looks out for casual ableism was like, hey, here's an instance of casual ableism. It just, it like alerts the mods only so we can like think about if we want to address it or not. Um, but I was like, good bot. 
Yes, that is typically seen as a casually ableist word, um, but you are using it as an identif- as an identity. Can you tell us more about identifying as mad? Absolutely. So I identify as mad um, in a way that signifies a political and socialized sort of radical stance in opposition to systems of oppression that work against people who have been labeled mentally ill mm-hmm. uh, or have problems with mental health. I am somebody who has been labeled as mentally ill or who has mental health issues. And for a while I identified, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm mentally ill. And, and this is not to say that there is a problem with people who identify as mentally ill. I mean, that's, I'm not here to tell people who to, what to call themselves. That's absolutely not my place. Um, but I found that for myself in my reckoning with, uh, kind of, disability theory and disability studies and learning more about how other people identify was like, wait, you know, this kind of implies that, that there is something amiss and awry within me. And Mm. I very much view my emotional suffering and turmoil, my madness, if you will, as something that has been constructed around me and that I'm responding to. So when I say that I'm mad or that I am a, a mad person, Um, I'm, I'm channeling kind of an age old, you know, people used to identify as mad or were forcibly identified as mad, Mm. uh, in a lot of ways, it's similar to the identity, the, the queer identity. People say, well, queerness is a queer being queer is a slur or not being queer is a slur to, to call yourself queer is, is to reclaim a slur. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not a slur for everybody. It is a slur for some people. I think it's important to respect that, you know, not everybody who's gay is queer, not everybody who's queer is gay. And, you know, there's a lot of complexity to that, but um, I very much view reclaiming madness to be kind of like reclaiming queerness. It's it's like taking the power back into my own two hands, um, and and being able to hold it and say like this is this is a decision that I've made and it's something that has happened to me and it's something that's happened to me and I've taken it and I'm I'm now naming it in a way that I feel comfortable with. I love that that it's a, a reclaiming. Um... And that's that's part of why having a show like this is cool, because I get to talk to people who are doing like wonderfully edgy things. <laughs> wonderfully edgy. yeah. Cool. <laughs> Not like I'm an edgy troll, like like I'm pushing the boundaries of what's socially accepted in order to further the, um, I don't know, social justice and wellness and acceptance in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The coffee must be working. I don't know how I constructed that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so fun. Okay. Um, So, Devin, what is something that you wish more people understood about being a psychiatric survivor? So I think the term psychiatric survivor is something that people, even if they are affiliated or affiliated with or have experience in the psychiatric industry, is something that people don't, they don't know what it means. Um, it's a, it's kind of a niche term at this point in time, still, unfortunately, even though there are so many of us, I think there are more psychiatric survivors than people who identify as such. Um, when I say I'm a psychiatric survivor, I say that I've survived, lived through, been subjected to, um, coercion at the hands of psychiatry and of the mental health field and that I've lived to tell the tale. And we know obviously that, or not obviously, but there are so many people who don't live to tell the tale in that sort of way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think to reclaim madness and to call myself a psychiatric survivor is to put more of the onus of my suffering on my suffering, my pain, the things that I've been dealing with 
on social systems rather than myself. Like if I am a psychiatric survivor, that begs the question, what have I survived? Well, I've survived mm-hmm. things that have happened to me at the hands of other people and systems and structures. And, you know, I think back to the times when I was um, a teenager, I was, I began therapy when I was about eight or nine and I was heavily medicated as a teenager over overly medicated. I mean, lots of, lots of different psychotropic meds and just, um, you know, I, w- I would have to go to school the next morning hungover from the sedatives. Cause I was just so unruly in my despair. I was a very shy person, a very quiet person, a very depressed person and a very nervous person. And the solution to that was to medicate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, you know, I kind of rolled with all of the punches. Um, I took the meds as prescribed. I was a great patient by all accounts. I was a a good patient, which Uh I mean, people who know what I'm talking about, you know, I took the meds exactly as prescribed. I showed up on time to all of my therapy appointments. And I, after years and years of this began to think, you know, what is the power dynamic that's at play here between me and this other person who's prescribing me these pills and telling me to do things and telling me to abstain from other things and telling me maybe that my gender is disordered or that my, you know, there's a lot of transphobia within the the psychiatric industry historically. And still, um, I really began to take more of an eye, more of a notice of like, what is happening between me and this other person, me and this psychiatrist, they have so much power right now. Mm -hmm. They have degrees on the wall from their various esteemed institutions. Um, I'm sitting possibly in my appointment with them in, on, you know, in a hospital and they have a lot of power over what goes into my body in terms of chemicals and medications. And, um, it's just, I really started to look at it and think like, there's something up here that's not being discussed by like the broader mental health community. Mm-hmm. So I wish more people even just heard the term psychiatric survivor. That was a long winded answer, but I think it's a complex problem. I'm here for long winded answers. You can, you can be even longer winded if you want to. Hey. <laughs> um, well, congratulations on surviving this far. Thank you. That's hard. <laughs> yeah. You did it. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting you talking about you were sort of an ideal patient. Um, and I'm curious if you feel like you saw any of the outcomes that people kept telling you you were going to have, or if you never really got there, like, I don't, does that question make sense? Absolutely. There's, there's a couple different ways I can go with that. Um, I'm thinking of the, kind of the good patient trope. Um, when I was hospitalized as a teenager, I remember being rewarded for essentially good behavior for compliance. Um, by, you know, if I, if I took my meds as prescribed and I I went to group therapy and I woke up at the same time every day and did what I was supposed to do, I was allowed to, for example, um, call my parents at the end of the day Mm -hmm. you know, having access to the outside world was, was, was a privilege. I was allowed Mm -hmm. to call my parents and tell them, tell them how my day was. I was allowed to go down to the cafeteria for meal times as opposed to having food brought to my, to, to my room. Um, and I really think like, I mean, I saw, in kind of a shadow self sort of way, what would have happened if I had been a bad, a quote unquote bad patient, if I had not ascribed to everything that ha- was, was happening to me, I think if I had said, well, what if I don't want to take this pill, you know, just a little bit of pushback, what would have happened? Um, mm-hmm. if I had maybe, uh, I'm autistic. And so what if I had been stimming on the unit in this, in this very psychiatrist environment in the hospital and they thought that I was maybe, 
flying into a rage and was going to be violent, but really I was just flapping my hands because that's something that I do to soothe myself. Um, what would happen? There are a lot of violent things that happen on psychiatric wards that I won't get into, but the threat mm-hmm. of that is always looming in my head. I mean, I dream about it. Um, it, it's in my mind every time I have an appointment with a therapist, it's, it's very much a psychiatric sort of trauma. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think I began to see that I was not meeting goals despite being a good patient. I was not achieving a recovery sort of sorts that they were looking for the way by they, I mean, the doctors and therapists and Mm -hmm. other people in my life, um, that I wasn't getting better in this, in the ways that maybe everybody had hoped and that I had hoped, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I, I wish to suffer less. And I think that's a good goal. And I think, I think the recovery model at the same time that everybody, you know, people get better. If you seek help, you know, seek help, you get better. Um, it's not a, it's not the case for everybody. And I think there's something to be said for how can we still live good lives that we enjoy and take pleasure in and and know that have our lives have purposes and still suffer. I think that Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be black and white, that you don't have to be recovered from mental illness and therefore your life is worth living. I think you can have major depression and, you know, a life from bed is still a life on bad days. You're still alive and living. And that, that can be absolutely good enough if the person at hand decides it is, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, there's so many threads I want to pull on, but um, (laughs) I, I'm curious just for context to begin. Um, what year or years were you an inpatient for folks listening to this later who maybe don't know what year this was recorded or what have you? What, what time are you referring to? Sure. I am, I am 25 now. I was inpatient when I was, um, 14 years old following a psychotic episode that was triggered by the medication that I was prescribed. So it was kind of a, an interesting little situation there. I was prescribed medication that had an interaction with an allergy med and I wound up kind of spiraling. So that this was, um, a little over a decade ago. And then I've been in residential treatment a couple of times for the span of months, um, twice since then. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's both fairly recent and also it very much in the past. It's, it's been going on a while. <laughs> yeah. And this was all in the United States. Correct. Yes. The, uh, mid Atlantic, not United States. Correct. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, there's, there's a way that Americans tell stories that always have happy endings. And if mm. you look at fairy tales in Europe, like if you look at the original mm. Grimm's fairy tales, they don't have happy endings. They're cautionary tales. And mm-hmm. Americans are really obsessed with positive, good outcomes. And there, even today, there's films that are shot with two different endings, depending on what demographic is going to be viewing the film later. Because Americans are so obsessed with happy endings with a neat bow that tie up nicely. And so to me, when I hear you describing these experiences of like, you know, following following all the steps laid before you and still not necessarily achieving these probably neurotypical outcomes that people expected you to achieve, um, it, it, it sounds like a bunch of Americans obsessed with happy endings to me. Absolutely. It's, it's people, um, Americans specifically, I mean, I've, I've never lived anywhere else long-term, so I can't speak to that, but I know that my culture is obsessed and invested in, um, simple narratives, narratives that make sense to the dominant population, whoever that is, white people, cis people, straight people, non-disabled people. I mean, 
we don't like complexity. And I think that that harms all of us, honestly. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. How, how is your transness impacted by your disabilities and madness and vice versa? How is it tangled up in each other? How does it um, benefit, detract from, or just make it interestingly different um, having that sort of cluster of things? So immediately I think of sensory sensitivities and mm -hmm. all of the accoutrement that is associated with transitioning. Um, yeah. All of the sensations, all of the, the, I mean, binding, packing, all of the things, it's just like, it, it's transitioning is full of new sensory experiences. And some of them are um, bad. <laughs> some of them are not pleasant to me, at least. Uh, I know that when I was wearing a binder, I bound uh, my chest for maybe five years before I had top surgery. And it was just, I mean, anybody who binds in the summer knows that it's not comfortable for somebody who has sensory sensitivities, is autistic, is hypersensitive to these sorts of things. I mean, sweating in a binder in August in a humid, like heat is just <laughs> not here for it. I wasn't here mm -hmm. for it. I, I did it for a bunch of years. Um, so that's something that is interesting that I think people who are just trans and not disabled and people who are maybe possibly just autistic and not trans don't think about like the, the overlap causes not only an intersection, but like a new sort of sphere of things that are happening. Um, it's also on the other hand, um, really nice to find community of people who are autistic and trans. I mean, mm -hmm. there are a lot of us, there are, Oh, I'm sorry. There's thunder happening. There are a lot of us. There are just like, and we're everywhere, which is so wonderful mm -hmm. in, in ways that I don't expect. I mean, even just like discovering the actually autistic, Twitter hashtag or the trans and autistic Twitter hashtag has been wonderful. Um, and then on the other hand, I mean, there've been some barriers in terms of accessing transition related care that I think a lot of autistic people have to think about. Um, there are a lot of, uh, people who would like to make other people believe that trans people are just trans because they're autistic or that they can't know their own gender because they're autistic. And that is obviously false. Um, and you know, it's just, it's a whole mishmash and, uh, it's complicated. And I think, I think it's just enriches my life in a lot of ways on, on good days. It enriches my life on bad days. I'm like, man, this is, this is obnoxious, but <laughs> on good days, I'm glad to be, to be all of it. Yeah. 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 You know, I have or had a binder and I only wore it a handful of times, I think for the sensory reasons that you're identifying. And it was like, it's, it's not that it's not that like, I didn't want a flat chest. It's that the physical, frankly, pain and discomfort, um, from, I have chronic back pain. And so to have compression when I already have pain flares going on is like, nope. <laughs> can't do it um thankfully the strongest like chest dysphoria season was during covid when everyone was home anyways i'm like i'm just gonna wear a shirt and crop my camera from here up so you can't see if i have boobs it's fine that is so convenient <laughs> and also i'm sure that there are many people who have also uh, had that experience just yeah. like sitting in quarantine questioning their gender and being like Ooh. <laughs> like this is actually convenient like everything is over zoom right now i mean yeah 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 oh gosh um <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot that you just said that I totally relate to. The the new sensory experiences, like 
I already have a tendency to like search my skin for like acne and things like that's one of my stims and so I have way more acne than I've ever had in my life now because testosterone thank you um, and so I'm like oh god there's more that I can deal with like what do I do yeah it's a time yeah. it's a total yeah. time um, yeah the skin stuff is the skin stuff can be a nightmare and also it's just I mean it changes based on what hormones you have running mm -hmm. rampant in your body or running not rampant in your body. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was on testosterone gel for about four years mm -hmm. and it wasn't working maybe as well as it could have been. Um, so I switched to injections and a mm -hmm. lot of people have great success on gel. This is not a bashing of testosterone gel or anything. It, it was wonderful. I got to avoid needles for a lot of years. Yeah. Um, now that I'm on injections, I really, it was a, such a gradual transition. I mean, I mm -hmm. cannot tell you when my voice changed. Yeah. It just over the span of a year, many months. I mean, some people yeah. say, you know, I woke up one day and my, I felt all scratchy or whatever. And I was, I had a very gradual and slow transition. And I think that was actually very helpful for the sensory issues and yeah. for parsing out what it is I wanted to, to look and feel like. Yeah. I love that. I love that slow also gets it done. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I also had a pretty strong fear of needles and I had to get over that. Um, but it wasn't as easy as just get over it. It was like a lot of fear and grit and crying and anxiety and talking to a lot of people about it. And oh, God. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the oh, God. I, I can give myself subcutaneous shots, but for some reason, shots in the leggy, I cannot do. So mm -hmm. I, I have a certain medication that needs to be in, in, administered intermuscularly. And I have just sat there with the needle uncapped for half an hour. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to mm -hmm. go to the queer clinic and they'll do it for me, which is a yeah. luxury that I have. But, um, yeah, shots are, shots are hard to get used to. Um, I'm for belly shots in the, the, ab, the, the fat in my abdomen is, is, is easier. Cause it's, I told myself it's a thinner needle and it doesn't hurt. So whatever yeah. gets you, gets you by. Yeah. I, my little mental trick is like, I just like touch my skin with the needle and then it's like, there's no going backwards. There's only going forwards. Like, <laughs> like this is the spot I picked. That's it. If I, if I pull it back now, like I have to wait a week before I get to try again. And it's like, no, yeah, you have to get a new needle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, I, I don't know. I kind of, I, I slightly dissociate. I'm like, this isn't a leg I'm doing cross stitch and I'm just threading thread through a thing and a cross stitch and then it works. I don't know. I tend to listen to music <laughs> when I do my shot. And at the beginning I would pick only like really hype music, like, uh, for a long time, um, rather be by clean bandit, which was like nice. overplayed on the radio in like 2015 is yeah. what I associate my transition with. Yeah. And so I would blast this song. And as soon as like the chorus drops or the beat drops or whatever, that's when I would like do the, you know, do the injection because I'm dramatic and I thought it would make a good, like, I'm, I'm very trans in this moment, plunging the needle as the chorus falls in and it just like, <laughs> it makes it exciting. I don't know. Well, I feel like these little like self-designed rituals to take care of ourselves is like exactly what we need. Like, oh yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to anybody else because it's not for them. It's for us. Just like with madness or neurodivergentness or whatever, like our soothing and coping skills like need to be tailored to us because we're the ones that it's serving. Exactly. Um, I'm the one it's serving. If it doesn't make sense to you, I applaud you for um, involving your own, <laughs> your own way of doing things. And like, we can all be different humans and that's, it's beautiful. Yeah. 
Well, that's one of the beauties of like getting to interview different trans people is we all have different coping tools. And so yes. like, even if we're talking about the same thing I've talked about with somebody else, that one person isn't the authority on that topic. And so like, you know, we can hear a bunch of different coping tools. So I'm curious for you, if you take a moment to just explain or describe what are some coping tools that have helped you along the way with being disabled and trans and mad? Sure. So I have developed this kind of noticing pattern. Some people would call it a gratitude list. I am not calling it a gratitude list because that sounds like something that I would be prescribed by a therapist. And I'm mm -hmm. a little bitter about things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but basically it's a habit that I've developed over the course of maybe the past couple of months of noticing what I call big little good things. And a big little good thing, it can be a big thing, it can be a little thing, it can be somewhere in between, and it's something that sparks joy or delight or comfort in my life. And it can be anything from a really good cup of coffee or the clouds in a sunset or just a little like noise that my cat makes when he yawns. Um, those are all big little good things. And I've taken to documenting them in my phone in like a photo album. So every time nice. I, and it's, it becomes like an, almost like an adventure. I'm like, you know, I'm feeling kind of, kind of dull. And I wake up in the morning and I'm like, you know what, today is an opportunity to find more little big, little good things and add them to my hoard in my phone. <laughs> and nice. it becomes this kind of game of like, I, I never really played Pokemon go shockingly, but, um, it's like go out on a hunt and see all of the like good things in the world that you can notice. And it becomes this like, phenomenon of once you notice them, the more you notice, like they kind of multiply almost. It's like, Oh, there's another big little good thing. And there's another big little good thing. And it, it's, it's a gratitude practice. And it's something I think that's most important is, is that it's something that I've taken on myself and not something that a therapist has told me to do. It's something that I enjoy. And I think that helps with the big sad. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm noticing we're running low on time. So I want to make sure I ask you this question from the audience. Um, Juice asks, how did you get into making zines about your experiences? Oh, I think my introduction to zines happened when I was actually in the hospital and a very close friend noticed some art that I was doing during art therapy. And she said, Devin, that looks a lot like something that would make up a zine. And I was like, what is it? I had this like moment of like, what's a zine? And she was like, oh, Devin, you, <laughs> you have some work to do. And so I started Googling and looking at um, zines on Etsy and just the hashtag zines on Tumblr and Twitter and social media. And I just like really that was kind of the gateway. And now it's like, I'm really into art. I'm really into typewriter poetry and the ways that you can combine that into an accessible format that is then able to be distributed to a bunch of people. So like you, you make art, you get it out there. It's, it's, it's a good time for everybody. I just, I have my own personal zine collection. I make a bunch of zines. It's, um, it's an art form that I really appreciate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm taking notes with my with my mods and admins right quick. So it looks like you have an Etsy shop with your zines in it. I do. Yes. <laughs> so we added yeah. we added the hyperlink to that to the resources. Um, awesome. So and I know you've got to go in four minutes. So speed run time. Um, <laughs> is there anything that we missed that you want to make sure you say about disability, madness, autism or mental health? I would say circling back quickly to this, my discussions as being critical of psychiatry. I want to make sure that I say, and maybe it kind of sucks that I have to say this, but, um, like 
do what you need to do to be alive. Just don't be mean. I think is, I think that's a Kate Bornstein quote. She's the author of, yeah, she's like, do whatever you need to do to be alive or stay alive. Just don't be mean. I very much ascribe to that philosophy. If that means taking psychiatric meds, if that means taking, if that means doing whatever you need to do, then um, I'm totally here for it. I'm not in any way here to bash people who take psych meds or people who go to therapy 70 times a week. I mean, I've been there. I am there still in a lot of ways. And if it's what keeps you here, keep doing it. Um, Kate, Kate Bornstein even has a book. It's like 101 alternatives to suicide for cool teens or something. Like it's like for freaks, wrong. geeks and other outlaws yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. wild. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And uh, they read the audiobook. Really? Kate, Kate actually reads multiple of their books. So if you want to hear Kate read their own life story in um, the one about that religion that's escaping me right now. Oh, Scientology. Scientology. Yeah. So there's a separate oh. book that Kate wrote about the Scientology stuff, but the but also the 101 Alternatives to Suicide. Um, it's so good. It's so good to hear Kate talk about life experiences and like, here's a bunch of choices you can make and some of them are better and some of them are less good, but they're all better than being dead. So they're all being better than being dead and being yeah. mean to people. So exactly. Do what you gotta do. That's so, cool. so great. I love that. Okay. Um, can you share an experience with gender euphoria? Gender euphoria. I, this was about a year ago, but it sticks out in my mind. I don't really wear pants. I only wear gym shorts because sensory nightmares exist in my life and are very prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I, anything that is tight fitting and very stiff in terms of fabric material is something that is not generally accessible to me. But mm-hmm. I decided that I should own a good pair of pants. Um, and so last, I think it was last year, last fall, I went out and I heard from another trans person on TikTok that um, there was a certain brand of pants and now I've mentioned it, but I can't remember the brand or the, 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 the model of, of pants, but I ordered this pair of pants on the internet and I was, it was a big risky factor for me because ordering clothes, you don't know if they're going to fit whatever, but I put on this pair of pants and I was wearing a Packer and I did a little TikTok video about like, you know what? I feel pretty good in my pants. And it was just like a nice little thing of like, I feel super mask and I feel super mask in a way that, I was just like alone in my bathroom and I was making this TikTok, and I'm like, you know what? I see myself. I look like I, I look like me and, um, maybe pants are okay. Sometimes. <laughs> I love that so much. Okay. Last question. What would you like to make sure folks know about your perspective on gender and non-binary or trans issues? I'd like people to know that it's evolving. I'm still listening and learning and like, Oh my goodness, just like absorbing as much as I can from other people, um, with lived experiences that are similar to and different to mine. Um, I think it's important when I'm learning about different experiences to mine that I'm listening to like material from the source. I'm not, you know, when I'm learning about a, a particular, for example, a mental health diagnosis, I'm not as interested in what the psychiatrists or the DSM has to say about it. I'm, I want to hear from people who have that label or identify with that label. And, um, I think I'm always looking to listen and learn. And, um, I think it's my life's work in a lot of ways and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Awesome. Well, 
Thank you so much, Devin, for being on the show today. I know you've got to run to your next appointment today. Um, so to, to review for folks listening or watching in the chat, um, Devin S. Turk, they, he is an autistic mad writer and college student. Um, you can go to Devin's link tree, which will be linked below. Um, link tr.ee forward slash Devin S. Turk. Devin is spelled D-E-V-I-N. Um, you can also catch Devin on socials. There's Twitter, Devin is Autistic, Instagram, Devin is Autistic, and TikTok, Devin is Autistic. Hey, you're very consistent. We yes, love to I see figured it. that would be best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the actual Autistic and Trans and Autistic hashtags that were mentioned, I have in the show notes along with the, the injection song. Maybe I'll get a link for it. Excellent. Put it excellent. in there so everyone can rock out. We can out. all jam to it. We can all, we can all rock out while we're doing our jabs. Um, very good. So, yeah, is there, is there anything else you want to make sure you say, Devin, before we wrap the show? Thank you so much for having me. This was oh, a rockin' yeah. time. <laughs> totally. This was wonderful. It's yeah. been a, a delight to have you. And, um, yeah, I look forward to seeing you maybe in the Discord server or something. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Discord is Discord is Discord and I are complicated because I get overwhelmed, but I... I That's fair. I want to tackle Discord. <laughs> yeah, I think I can I, learn. I like I like muting almost all of the channels and just focusing on a couple and getting to know a few people, and then sort of like maybe I'll add one channel a week that I pay attention to Ooh, and see how okay. that goes. Because then like it's it. like it's not a ton of over overstimulating information. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Awesome. Well, next week's guest, everyone, is going to be Christopher Economou, and we're discussing disabled trans art. So we've got a whole disability theme going on in these two episodes. It's great. Um, Jennifer would like to thank our guests for being on this podcast. Feel free to join us live on Twitch on Mondays. Check out the replays on YouTube on Fridays and keep an eye on your favorite podcasting platforms for edited audio only versions. As Sweet Neverkitty says, trans rights are human rights. That's right.